Well, hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. It's your boy, Dr. Mark Liss, coming at you with another summer episode. Sorry, I've been well, I've been gone a lot, been busy, um, haven't had enough time for podcasting. Um, but uh, we today are going to talk about a couple of different um, studies. Um, actually, I'll probably make them all in the individual episodes. It'll come out weekly. That way it won't be a month between episodes. How about that? But before we get into that, we're going to talk about the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox. That's where you send me articles you want me to review, studies, feedback, et cetera, and everyone's favorite part of the podcast, the jokes. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have a joke today. It's been a while. Um, I haven't had an episode, so I don't think anybody sent me any jokes recently. But um, it is summertime, and we, uh, my wife and I were out at a garage sale recently, and something really funny happened to me. Um, uh, so I, we were walking around and I saw one of our neighbors had a television outside their house and they were for sale and there's a sign stuck on it. I thought it was really funny. The sign said stuck on maximum volume, only $20. And I thought to myself, ah, I can't turn that down. Oh, let's start the podcast. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back to the podcast, pod girls, pod boys, and pod peoples. Uh, let's talk about some studies today. Uh, welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm your podcasting host, your best friend, uh, your long-term summer companion, uh, Dr. Mark List, uh, coming at you with another episode today. Um, today's episode is from the Annals of Internal Medicine. Just yesterday, hot off the presses, June 27th, uh, link in the show notes below, uh, wherever you get this podcast episode. And the article um, is from the University of Chicago, Illinois, um, and it is time-restricted eating without calorie counting for weight loss in a racially diverse population. And you say, Dr. List, you have done this. You've done this episode before. But... This is an actually really interesting study. And again, um, it gets it gets back into reinforcing, I think, some of our importance on discussing dietary counseling in primary care. Super important. And also, uh, this gets back into my conversation about don't be a zealot. You don't need to have a specific um, uh, dieting plan because uh, in the past I've said how time-restricted eating actually failed a randomized control trial. Uh, refer back to like last year when I, uh, when I had that episode. But this is a really interesting article because it is a one-to-one-to-one randomized control study. It is not placebo-controlled, okay? Um, but it is, uh, it is, and it is not uh, blinded. Uh, so it is a randomized control trial where 90 patients were randomized into a group of 30 time-restricted eating, a group of 30 calorie reduction, uh, calorie restriction, or 30 were in the control group. Now, the N is actually pretty small here. It's only 77 actually completed the, completed the entire study. But this is a year-long follow-up. So again, you've heard me give my spiel on a lot of these quote-unquote uh, dietary science um, studies and how dietary science is kind of an oxymoron because they're not really scientific in many cases. They're pretty weak, weak studies. But this is actually a really good, um, I think, high-quality study. And there's some limitations, which we'll talk about. But 
um, they put people, I'll, I'll read basically the, the Reader's Digest version and we'll get into more details because the more details um, make the study a lot more interesting than what the abstract has. And the abstract is really simply that the results show that there was a significant reduction in calorie intake on a daily basis for time-restricted eaters and for uh, calorie, redu- calorie restriction eaters compared to placebo. And at the end of 12 months, there was a significant reduction compared to control for both groups. And both groups did not have a statistical significance between the two groups, even though calorie restriction lost more weight technically than time-restricted eating. But not not statistically significant, and whether that's because of a small study group or not accounting for the large variance in individual weight loss, um, that's kind of the take-home, is that both worked. Time-restricted eating worked against uh, placebo, uh, against control. Time-restricted eating um, wasn't inferior. Uh, it was it was non-statistically significant compared to caloric restriction, which is kind of the quote-unquote gold standard for weight loss. Now, the actual methods of this study are where we get into how is this study going to be helpful for primary care providers. So in the time-restricted eating group, it was a six-month weight loss phase and then followed by a six-month weight loss plateau or maintenance phase, they called it. So the time-restricted eating was from noon until 8 p.m., and they could eat whatever they wanted to, not required to monitor the caloric intake. There was no restrictions on quantities or types of food consumed, literally just noon till 8 for six months. Interestingly, in that 8 p.m. until noon the next day, the 16-hour fasting window, participants were encouraged to drink plenty of water and, and here's a big caveat, permitted to consume energy-free drinks such as black tea, coffee, and diet sodas. And you have all heard my spiel on diet sodas. And the the studies are pretty clear that what diet sodas do, yes, they have no calories specifically, but they stimulate parts of the brain that encourage overeating and excessive eating in order to make up that caloric deficit. And so during the next six-month phase, so that was a six-month time-restricted eating, okay? So they lost a ton of weight, um, and then they had a six-month period where they it was called the quote-unquote weight maintenance phase. Participants were encouraged to maintain their body weight and widen their eating window from 10 a.m. till 8 p.m. and then fast um, 8 p.m. till 10 a.m. So um, they basically went down to a 10-hour eating period instead of the eight-hour eating period that it was during the initial six months. And again, during that fasting window, they could consume uh, diet sodas. They could consume basically any liquids that were not energy or caloric, um, uh, contained any calories, basically, or minimal calories, which again, caveat here, we'll talk about this. So here is what the caloric restriction group phase was. During the six-month weight loss phase, participants in the calorie restriction group were instructed to reduce their energy intake by 25% every day. Total energy energy expenditure was calculated by this Mifflin-St-Gior equation and multiplied by the appropriate activity factor for each participant individually. Participants in the calorie restriction group met with the study dietitian at the beginning of the trial to develop individualized weight loss meal plans. The plans included menus, 
portion sizes, and food lists that were consistent with the participants' food preferences and prescribed caloric levels for weight loss. The food list contained examples of healthy foods that should be purchased to make the meals. For example, lean proteins like chicken, turkey, fish, and tofu, fruits, veggies, nuts, and low-fat dairy products. Participants were asked to fill half of their plates with fruits or vegetables at every meal and consume roughly 50% of energy as carbohydrates, 30% of energy as fat, and 20% of energy as protein. During the weight maintenance phase, uh, the caloric restriction participants were instructed to consume 100% of their energy expenditure needs every single day. But this new energy expenditure was recalculated at the beginning of this period for all participants with the dietitian. The net caloric reduction from baseline was approximately 15% on average. And then control patients were just control patients. Um, so here, here is something I found, again, very interesting about this study. One of the highlights of this study is the fact that it is very racially diverse. I, I, again, I talk about it on the study. Uh, a lot of our studies are majority white. They're, um, you know, very, you know, non, uh, non-heterogeneic. Um, and in this study, 37% of participants were black, 43% were Hispanic, and only 10% were white uh, on average. And that is a pretty dramatic change from what our average study is, where 70 or 80% of patients in these studies are white. Um, and these were all people with a BMI between 30 and 50. The mean age was 40 um, or 44, sorry. So again, a, a pretty good um, uh, mix of very racially diverse patients. Now, in the weight loss period, the first six months, there was no statistical significant difference between the time-restricted eating and the caloric restriction. And that maintenance phase, basically, the groups really didn't change weight. So what their weight loss period was in the first six months really didn't change from months six through 12. There was some variability, a little up, a little down, but pretty consistent overall. And what I think is really interesting about this is it shows that two things. Number one is the caloric restriction group was designed not to have any weight change. They were designed to, you're only going to eat this many calories, and then once you lose weight, we're going to recalibrate what your body needs from a caloric intake, and then you can only eat this many calories per day. As you heard me describe, that caloric restriction group also had a very restrictive diet. 50% from uh, carbohydrates, 30% from from fat, 20% of energy as protein. Half of their plates needed to be fruits and vegetables at every meal. And you had to meet with a dietitian, had to have a meal plan, purchasing foods uh, that would be used to make these healthy meals, um, appropriate portion sizes, etc. This is not a quote-unquote real-life scenario. Now, you may, in your institution, have a great dietitian. You may have uh, an amazing weight loss plan for a lot of these patients, right? But in the real life, uh, you know, patients, majority of Americans eat out. They eat on the run. They are busy. They have kid activities at nighttime. They work odd hours. Um, they may be in food deserts where they uh, aren't able to help purchase healthy fruits and vegetables on a routine basis, cost prohibitive, for example. Another reason why people don't get this um, adequate nutrition or lack of access to a good dietitian, right? Whether it's uh, due to a lack of educational ability to make this type of food or the ability to, um, uh, you know, understand the nutrition education that they're getting versus just not having a good dietitian or available dietitian in their, in their area or being able to afford dietitian appointments, right? This was all part of a study that was paid for. And I think the difference is, is that 
you saw a very specific weight loss plan designed custom for each individual patient and then recalibrated so the patient didn't balloon back up once that six-month weight loss period happened. Because that's what happens in most patients. And you even saw it a little bit, if you look at the data month by month by month, the caloric restriction group really did start to kind of gain a little bit more weight before they kind of settled back out. When they when they went from being on this tailored diet plan to basically you need to eat 100% of your new caloric restriction, their bodies tried to gain a little bit of that weight back before they kind of settled back down to where they were at that six-month period, right? So the overall trend from six to 12 months was pretty stable. Versus with time-restricted eating, it's basically just don't eat between these hours. And the overall weight loss by an actual, um, by a number, was greater in the caloric restriction. Let's be clear on that. Um, It was 4.9 kilograms or 4.6 kilograms to 5.4 kilograms on average weight loss. So the time-restricted eating group, time-restricted eating on average only lost 4.6 kilograms. And in the caloric restriction, they lost 5.4. Again, not statistically significant, but a number-wise, there was a difference. And I think, though, the key is is that if you have patients that are motivated, if you have patients that are looking to take full control over the macronutrient balance and what they're actually fueling their body with, absolutely caloric restriction seems like a no-brainer. It is the gold standard. Um, It is not only going to help with weight loss, but in all, you know, in, in every study, we see an improvement in overall um, overall other factors. And in this study, they looked at secondary factors such as like fasting glucose levels, uh, fasting insulin levels, insulin resistance levels, insulin sensitivity issues, hemoglobin A1C levels, blood pressure, heart rate, total cholesterol. They looked at all of that data. And there really wasn't much change between the two groups, right? Uh, time-restricted eating did improve Uh, saw an increase in insulin sensitivity compared to placebo, um, but not compared to the calorie restriction. So in in general, right, when we look at the overall outcomes, time-restricted eating worked for patients in the study, but so did calorie restriction. And so my take home is, again, don't be a zealot out there saying that only one diet works for everyone because whether it's Mediterranean, whether it's DASH, whether it's time-restricted eating, whether it's caloric restriction, whether it's Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers or anything, patients can lose weight and oftentimes do. It's just a matter of finding something for patients that is consistent, that they can stay on, and that works for them in the long term. And for some people, a change is good. For some people, it depends on what their motivations are and what their abilities are. But patient preference and patient understanding of their own bodies and their own um, ability to adhere to diet plans matters far, far more than the individual diet plans. And again, this is study number X in my in my case of don't be a zealot for any one individual plan. Offer suggestions. Offer counseling. Uh, advise weight loss whenever possible. Avoid. Uh, uh, advise healthy types of foods. Uh, whole natural foods whenever process whenever possible. Less processed foods whenever possible. And then just hope that we can get them on a plan that works for them. Anyways, this has been Dr. Mark List with another study um, on time restricted eating. Hopefully, this is the last one I do in a long time, but again, I thought this was a really well-done study and really um, indicated some very clear differences between caloric restriction and time-restricted eating in terms of the overall um, real, real real-life setup needed in order to achieve 
good results in both groups, minimal versus um, a considerable amount of, of work into each group. Um, and so again, I hope that this is helpful for you. This has been Dr. Mark List, signing off from the Primary Care Pod. Reminder, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Thanks and have a great week.